This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Bowser Jr. Do you wish turtles were evil and had ponytails? Try Bowser Jr. today. Welcome to another bonus episode of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, June 11th. It is also my mom's birthday, so happy birthday, mom. You can subscribe to The Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content, and more. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. We're back with another bonus episode today, and we have got Christian Alberga and Matt Gratkow here for a bipartisan conversation about a previous episode. As always, both of them are new to these topics, so you'll get to hear their initial reactions and see what kind of common ground they find. Last time, Christian made the pick, and he chose international accountability. Now it's Matt's turn, and he chose... Episode 37, Corn. So go listen to episode 37 if you haven't already. It'll also be a good refresher for next week's episode, since I'll be referencing the Corn episode a little bit next week too. And then come back here because we've got a fun conversation for you. But first, let's break down some of the latest environmental news. A new study found that an ingredient in Skittles, titanium dioxide, is no longer considered safe. So in addition to tasting the rainbow, you can also taste DNA damage. And it's not just Skittles. This chemical is targeting everyone's favorite childhood treats. It's in Starburst, Hostess's Donuts, Swedish Fish, Jell-O, Little Debbie Cakes, Tasty Cakes, and Sour Patch Kids. I mean, America's youth already have so much to worry about, from figuring out who they're sitting next to on the bus to their field trips, to learning the newest suggestive dance for TikTok. So carcinogens in candy really crosses a line. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced Monday that the amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere reached 419 parts per million in May, which is the highest level recorded in more than 4 million years, which is really disappointing, because I could have made so many good jokes if it were 420. I mean, what's fun about 419? Sure, it was fun this year because Patriot's Day fell on 419, but normally the only holidays on 419, according to Google, are Bicycle Day, Garlic Day and National Amaretto Day. And to tell you the truth, drunk almond lovers biking to the Olive Garden just doesn't sound like a fun day. Los Angeles County has recently become overrun with peacocks, and I know Californians are complaining now, but don't worry, it's a hell of a lot better than a bunch of HBO Maxes running around. I mean, the peacocks don't make you pay them too much money, and in just a month, they'll be streaming the Olympics. In a span of just over three weeks, more than 47 tons of plastic was found at America's largest protected marine reserve off Hawaii. 47 tons of plastic. That's like an entire box of individually wrapped plastic forks. Florida manatee deaths are sharply rising as their food sources are depleting due to pollution. And I have to say, why is it always the cute and nice animals dying? Why can't it ever be like the poisonous sea slug is declining? Or the people who like grape-flavored things population is declining? 
New York City legislators have proposed updates to the city's building code that would prohibit new and renovated buildings from burning fossil fuels. Now the buildings would be exclusively powered by Siren Noise's pizza rats and whatever smudge they can scrape off the wall at Papaya King. A new study in French Polynesia found that clownfish closer to the coast are dying faster due to artificial light exposure, which is a real bummer to hear. I mean, it is a lot less scary if all you have to do is shine a flashlight into the sewer. Officials in Jakarta, Indonesia, have reportedly become confused over a mysterious white foam that has built up in one of their flood canals. Beats me, said the custodians who clean college dorm shower drains. CNN recently reported that an alligator from Louisiana was discovered on a South Texas beach over 400 miles away from home. And all I can say is I really hope he bought two plane tickets. I mean, a six foot two guy with moderately hairy legs wearing shorts is bad enough, but a 500 pound alligator that can kill you? That alligator had better spring for economy comfort. And lastly, after illegally cutting down a valuable red cedar tree in Canada, a poacher carved a menacing face into the stump of the tree. I guess that proves you don't need alcohol to get faced. Do you ever feel like mustache Italian plumbers have it too easy these days? If so, Bowser Jr. is for you. With Bowser Jr., you'll have a seasoned kidnapper ready to hold the plumber's wives hostage and then fight to the death just to keep them there. What's more, when you do kill Bowser Jr. in a fight, you'll basically be killing a turtle, making turtles even more endangered than they already are. What a concept. Bowser Jr., has anyone tried fighting him with a plastic straw? Welcome back to this week's bonus episode. I'm joined once again by Christian Alberga and Matt Gratkow. Christian and Matt, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having us again. Yeah, as always, thanks. It's great. So this week, Matt picked the episode that we'll be discussing. Matt, would you like to tell us what you picked and why? Yeah, I picked corn. Um, I am out here in the Midwest, so it's a big part of life here. Um, Otherwise, I think it's a fascinating topic of like, a classical uh, government subsidy question. I think, you know, there's almost nothing more straightforward and old school than government subsidizing agriculture to maintain some level of independence and sovereignty. Um, And I think that's a concept that Christian and I have wrapped into a lot of the episodes that we've discussed together um, one way or another. And I thought this one was really directly that. So excited to talk about it a little more. Oh, I am so excited to get into subsidies. I feel like you guys have been agreeing too much, and I I think this might be what does it. Uh, So, Christian, do you want to tell us your first impressions of the episode? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of different things to unpack, and I actually had not thought about, um, you know, corn and agriculture subsidies in a way of, you know, just being able to be food independent as a nation, but it definitely makes sense, especially... Um, just given that we, you know, we're going towards this like bipolarity in the world, we're always be seeing all these problems with global supply chains, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, bringing a lot more of American supply chains home. So it kind of like drives home the need that yes, America needs to be able to produce all its food within its borders. I think the big question that you know made me, what I thought is one, obviously culture. If you know corn is a big part of American culture, you know government intervention to change that could be you know massively politically unpopular. 
but but then you know still considering the different um environmental effects and you know if we're gonna subsidize um you know more sustainable ag agricultural practices which would involve crop rotations or things like that since we already do um like the episode said produce way more corn than we even eat so i think there's a lot of different interesting things to unpack here were you guys aware of that statistic that so much of our corn is for ethanol and animal feed and not for human consumption? I actually was not. I knew that a lot of it was going toward more base food production. So like corn syrups and corn meal and, and things that go into a lot of other foods and like flowers and stuff like that. I knew that a lot of it went into animal feed, but I guess I hadn't thought about like the secondary effects of that and what it actually implied in terms of, I mean, both the economic and the environmental impacts there. So that was definitely a really interesting thought. And I'm not the biggest uh, understander of like where all the ethanol is going. Um, but I have to assume that some of it is for human consumption and some of it is more for like mechanized production and, and other things uh, outside of that. And that I think also has big implications, especially of the non-human consumption ethanol, where that's going and what other prices it might impact too. I think most of it is for frat parties. Got to have a good corn-based natty light. Christian, what about you? Um, I didn't know that we have large swaths of corn. I haven't spent much time in the Midwest, but I've heard of the, you know, miles and miles of corn fields. Um, you know, what it immediately made me think about is, okay, if we're going to subsidize corn for um, food independence, you know, that definitely goes up to a certain point that we know that, okay, we make enough food for people to eat and then we have enough to stockpile. But then I think it's a separate question of all this like additional corn that's used for animal subsidies and ethanol. Is this the most efficient thing to subsidize? And is it the most environmentally um, friendly thing to subsidize? And so I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to disagree with changing subsidies for corn for human consumption, but, you know, I definitely think we can take a close look at the subsidies that are used in animal for corn that's used for animal feed or ethanol and think about, you know, is there just a much more efficient product that could be used for for those two um, areas as well? Or if we just need to, you know, the corn is fine, but we just need to promote more sustainable agricultural practices through the subsidies. So, you know, it's, it's not something I'd considered before, but I found it really interesting. So Christian, you mentioned this idea of food independence a couple of times, and I think it came up in the episode two, where uh, a country like the United States would say, we need to always be able to feed our population. We don't want to ruin that if we run into some uh, trade barrier or war or something with another country that we're importing food from. As such, we need to subsidize our food so that we have enough domestically to feed our population. That sounds good in theory, but we're only subsidizing like seven crops, corn being one of them. Like we grow so much more corn than any other food and corn is pretty low in nutritional value compared to a lot of other foods. And we're exporting a bunch of our corn and importing a bunch of our other foods. So even though it seems the intent of these subsidies is in part food security, do you feel like that's actually what it's accomplished? Yeah, well, I, th I think an interesting point to go to was the, you know, the different voice clips of the farmers who were very against the idea of taking subsidies, even though, you know, the corn industry clearly relies on subsidies. 
I think it just highlights the large political power of, you know, the corn industry. And, you know, the fact that there would be a considerable opposition in order to change the status quo. Because I think, you know, if you are thinking, okay, we have a brand new country, we want to start, you know, producing food, you'd probably strategically think, okay, let's try and have, a, you know, obviously we want to be making what we can make most efficient, but let's have a strategic mix. And it seems like we, because the status quo is to make a lot of corn and, you know, it's just, it's a lot more politically difficult to then change that status quo, even though, even if, you know, an alternative solution is a much better outcome. Yeah, I think also one thing that maybe uh, is important to note too, is that when you are subsidizing something like corn, you're also subsidizing like meat production. Um, and so the ability to feed, you know, the animals is also in turn the ability to feed the humans chicken and beef. And then of course, you know, whiskey. So I think <laughs> some of the independence there is is important to note too. But I agree. I think there's something definitely more to be said about the fact that like these subsidies might not be efficient, especially at this, like the fact that they haven't changed much over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I'm not an expert on the time frame, but I do know that they've been in place for a while and there hasn't been a whole lot of effort to change them. Um, so it'd be really fascinating to see. Yeah. I mean, I think this, the whole idea of subsidies got me thinking about this other idea, which I think is somewhat relevant, which is, um, you know, in the same way that the U.S. has subsidized agriculture to then become this like agricultural powerhouse globally, I think the U.S. has an opportunity to do a similar process with biomanufacturing because, you know, obviously there's a lot of talk about the environmental effects that, um, you know, raising livestock have. And, you know, we, we see all these different things about lab-grown meat and, you know, meat alternatives. And I know there's, it's very controversial. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions about it, but U.S. really does have an opportunity right now while these industries are super young to think of it as a similar mindset because, you know, a lot of these tech startup firms are trying to raise a lot of money in Silicon Valley so they can make lab-grown meat and, you know, lab-grown you know, other materials to replace, you know, these large um, fields of agriculture. And, you know, you know, possibly investing in those industries could help alleviate some of the pressures. Because if we do get some big breakthrough in, um, you know, lab grown meat, that could then, you know, reduce our need to produce as much corn, that could, um, you know, reduce our need to grow as, uh, raise as much livestock and, you know, allow America to claim back a lot of, you know, the many millions of acres of land that is currently just going to raising livestock right now. So you both have taken some econ and we're talking about subsidies. Obviously, there are plenty of both costs and benefits to producing corn. And like you guys are both saying, this issue gets really tricky. But I'll just ask you point blank, how do you think with very little actual experience with the issue that we would think about reforming corn subsidies? Yeah, that's a big question. And honestly, I tried to look for the answer uh, before this. I, I was looking to see if any think tanks had proposed any sort of market efficient alternatives, uh, because to me, at least, it seems like as the costs have become more apparent, like of the negative externalities and everything like that, there hasn't been a whole lot of updating of understanding the benefits uh, and how they outweigh or if they outweigh the costs. This is not a 
inconsequential sum of money, looking at like the 20 billion that's spent on corn subsidies, but it's also not an outrageous amount of money in order to like think about, you know, putting in some investment into researching and, you know, maybe I'm biased here, but like hire an external economic consulting firm to like figure out what the efficient end might be. Um, Because I think that there's going to be some balance that needs to be struck between the number of crops that need to be sold of each variety, um, what the subsidy is, you know, balancing those negative effects, um, understanding like how this all would affect meat prices and alcohol prices, everything that is an end result. It's an infinitely complex problem, which, you know, is the reason I think why it's been largely untouched. But I do think that there's a lot more that we need to do here. And I don't think that necessarily like changing the fertilizers to manure is necessarily the right answer. Maybe it is to some degree, but I think there's just so many different facets that need to be explored. And I think that that's the first step to actually figuring it out is, is having a certain group that is somehow at least hopefully unbiased looking and writing down the costs, the benefits, the actual impacts on prices, the impacts on sovereignty, everything that is wrapped up in this problem, because again, it's just so big. Christian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I almost come into this issue pessimistic because you can imagine the relevant committees in the Senate are going to be dominated by, um, you know, senators from these corn producing states, and they're going to rely heavily on donations from people who have a vested interest in current policies staying the same way. So I, the, the opposition in, you know, changing something like corn subsidies, I think is vast there being just such huge, significant headwinds. I think, you know, what I could see as some kind of reasonable strategy is, you know, keeping some the same levels of subsidies, but tying them to more sustainable um, agricultural practices. So whether that be, you know, crop rotation, so it's the same producers, but, you know, you produce corn and then you start producing wheat or barley, um, you know, on alternating years and you still get your subsidy. So your, you know, your profit still stays the same. It's, you're just, you know, you're just trying to promote um, healthier agricultural practices. And if there is, you know, less efficiency, the government taking that burden, you know, I, I could see those being the strategies that are more um, politically feasible, but I, I don't think, um, you know, reducing the absolute amount of money that ends up in the, you know, current, hands of, you know, big agriculture is going to really be something that um, is going to pass. And like Matt said, it's not the biggest issue we have now. And so, you know, you're not going to see much, um, you know, direct opposition to like a really loud and powerful um, constituency because, you know, we have all these other very controversial issues that we're trying to do on somewhat of a one-sided basis right now. Yeah, just to disagree slightly there. I think this is uh, one of the times that we might just slightly disagree at least. But I I do think that like one of the more efficient outcomes might actually be that you're just redistributing some of the funds. You know, I think uh, in the podcast quoted that 75% of the funds go to like the top 10% of producers, which makes sense from a volume perspective and makes sense from a scale perspective. But one of the things might be actually that you see that just of that 75%, a lot of it is going to the same producers to produce different crops that hopefully are going to be growing anyway, not in the physical sense, but in the uh, more philosophic sense that, you know, the market is kind of going that way. 
and that like you know as vegetarianism and more vegetable based eating takes hold um those benefits of like starting early to give subsidies for some of those alternative crops might actually be to everyone's favor but who knows i'm just kind of making some hypotheses there so yeah i would be really interested to see if some researcher was able to and maybe this has been done i know it has to an extent but looking like across the board what are the external costs of like every crop and then balance out the subsidies accordingly uh because i think uh you make a good point that uh you don't want farmers to lose their jobs obviously but finding a way for them to perhaps grow the crops that we might prefer as opposed to growing so much corn just because i mean obviously animal feed and ethanol are things we need but when we go back to talking about uh food security like we're not eating our corn and diets based solely on corn are also not particularly healthy diets we did a episode on pellagra which was about how corn heavy diets can actually lead to some really bad disease so yeah i don't know it's you're it's a really tricky one corporations tend to do think you know very short term and in short term profits but you know in the long term the farmers and agricultural industry do have an incentive of keeping the soil healthy um you know keeping the environment sustainable so that they can continue to be producing more crops so you know obviously we don't have numbers right in front of us but you know you do want incentives to align for you know these corporations to like care about the soil health and so i do think subsidies can be used in a way to you know incentivize this care because you know whether it be corn or some alternative crops we presumably want to continue growing on the same land for you know decades to come and so i think just getting incentives aligned in the right way seems like you know a very key first step yeah i also want to talk a bit about sustainable farming because there's a lot of these practices uh whether it be crop rotations or crop diversification or um even just making sure you don't have the same exact breeds of corn or uh reducing pesticide use finding ways to reduce fertilizer use even using manure these are all things that farmers can do to help out this issue quite a bit how big of a role do you see the government playing in that and how big of a role do you see the private sector playing in that Well, yeah, I think there definitely needs to be consultation. I don't think the government should enforce, you know, one method of crop, um, you know, or of agriculture, or one method of, or one specific type of, you know, like species they should use. Um, you know, definitely needs to be consultations on, you know, private public sector. But, you know, the the private sector is going to definitely have their incentives driven by profits, and it's going to have a bias towards the status quo. And so if we want to change if we see a more efficient outcome and we want to change it to that you know the government can lead it and that's why I think you know if we're if we're going to assume that subsidies in some form are going to stay you know using subsidies to 
you know, come to whatever more efficient outcome we want is the best path forward. So I don't think it shouldn't just be a mandate from the government as to what to do. But, you know, once we determine that, you know, certain practices might be more optimal, optimal, then, you know, using subsidies to guide the private sector towards, you know, doing what we determine is the most optimal. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that just by introducing incentives and subsidies in any sort of form, you're already intervening as the government and you have to realize that like you are creating certain incentives and certain behaviors um, just by putting money where it, you know, where you think it should go. And so I think the first thing is just being really aware of what those are. And I think people have kind of become aware of what those are, which includes the fact that like, you know, if you want to ask people to rotate crops onto certain land and just like let land be, that's just sacrificing revenue there. Um, And so no company is going to reasonably do that unless it's enforced. And then, you know, you're thinking about using manure versus like chemicals and it's probably in terms of weight, like one to a hundred for fertilizers or, or something similar like that. So just in terms of like costs that would grow exponentially. So some of these more stereotypically healthy practices that we would want to maybe incentivize are going to be very, very difficult to actually incentivize without thinking about my opinion, at least like crop diversification um, and that kind of benefit, because I think you're always going to have farmers that are going to want to use all their land at every point in time, unless there's any sort of like, you know, massive shock that they realize is imminent. And at the same time, I don't think you're ever going to use natural fertilizers unless they're able to replicate artificial ones in any sort of reasonable scale, um, which I just don't see happening in the short term. So I think you really do have to focus on like crop rotation as one of the strategies um, and think about like what the implications are there. Another angle that we haven't really spoken about is consumer preference, because, you know, you could see a scenario where, you know, rather than trying to change the agricultural industry from a government level, if consumer preferences change, then the producers will adapt to that. So, you know, if, you know, for example, like a shift towards a more vegan diet on a large scale would most certainly, you know, disincentivize the continuation of livestock rearing and incentivize, you know, a whole host of other businesses that, you know, facilitate, you know, a vegan lifestyle. So, um, you know, I think, you know, may possibly campaigns that educate people on the harms of um, you know, pesticides or, you know, what corn could do to one's diet just from a health perspective, you know, could lead to consumer prep changes. Obviously, a big driver of consumer preferences is cost. And if, you know, a lot of our diets consists of corn, because it's a lot, it's very easy to make products out of corn, it's just going to, you know, as long as corn is cheap, we're, we're just gonna do it and people get used to, you know, consuming high fructose corn syrup. So it's not really as, uh, you know, it's this is definitely not like a short term solution that's gonna make, you know, any huge impact in the short term. But, you know, f- for instance, if there was just a lot of like bad rap for high fructose corn syrup and you just see this, you know, massive shift in people consuming products that use some kind of alternative, I do think you will see some kind of private sector shift. But, you know, I don't think, you know, we can discuss then, like, is it the government's place to be like, you know, to be talking down one specific, um, you know, product just because we feel like there is this 
you know, environmental concern or what have you. Um, so, you know, I think all the information should be extremely transparent in terms of the environmental and human health effects. And so it's just thinking about which institutions and in what ways are you going to highlight that so that consumers can make, you know, the most informed decisions for themselves as to what they want to consume. I think also if you just, you know, give subsidies for some of the largest, uh, agricultural producers to shift away from corn and go towards, let's say, soybeans and say soybeans are used for making tofu and tofu is rivaling meats and stuff like that, that that kind of thing doesn't fall out naturally too from the private sector. Like you wouldn't, you might see that those, uh, you know, big agricultural producers that have switched away from corn now put out huge campaigns against corn um, in order to gain market share. And, and so that kind of thing can also just like fall out from putting money in the right places. Um, without necessarily the government having to do that kind of campaigning. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the possibilities are, are expansive. Uh, maybe not endless, but definitely, you know, huge. Christian, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. This wraps up this week's bonus episode of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout out by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout out by joining our Patreon. And not just a shout out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Shannon Damiano, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Frank Hernandez, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central.